This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Spread grace, speak truth, we start, this is the kingdom. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom, the kingdom, yes it is, gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend Christopher Butler. Now, y'all know Christopher Butler has been campaigning. He's, he's doing some good work in the first district of Illinois, and so he won't be with us uh, again today. But I do have a special guest that I think y'all are going to get be very excited about, and we'll get into that a little later. Uh, the first thing that I have to say, and I'd be remiss not to not to cover this, our hearts go out to uh, all the families that lost loved ones in Texas earlier this week. Um, just such an unthinkable tragedy. Um, and the facts are still coming out. Uh, there's a lot of different things being said. So I'm not going to get too deep into the details of that conversation today on this episode. Uh, but we do uh, want to be prayerful about all that's going on. Uh, and I, I'll say what we usually say when this happens and it's happening all too often, but it's time for prayer and action. Uh, the Ann campaign deeply believes that our prayers are never in vain. So we're not going to join the folks saying acting like prayer means nothing. But we also don't use our prayers as an excuse to avoid necessary action, to avoid sacrificing and changing that which is in our sphere of influence. We think it's only faithful to do so. Uh, whether we're advocate, whether we'll be advocating for red flag laws or universal background checks and so on, something has to be done. This cannot continue in the same way. And Christians need to be engaged in a real way. Not just looking at our differing interests, but what's the interest of the children? What's the interest of the common good? We need to do something about this. And so maybe we'll get uh, back into this subject in another episode, but I'm not going to go into the details today. I will say that it is indeed time for prayer and action. On another, on another much lighter note, but still, you know, consequential note, it was primary week here in Georgia. And I would say that the big story is how little influence Trump had over Georgia primary voters. Many of you know that he recruited a former Georgia Senator David Perdue, right? He recruited him to run against incumbent governor Brian Kemp. Now, this goes back to the beef that Trump had with Kemp for Kemp's refusal to try to uh, to help Trump overturn the election results in Georgia in 2020. Since then, it's been very clear and he's been very vocal about uh, Trump's been very vocal about the vendetta that he's had against Governor Brian Kemp for uh, what I guess he would he would call uh, uh, his uh, 
omission, uh, his unwillingness to help to help out in, in, in the big lie, really. The country has kind of been watching to see if Georgia Republicans would kick out an incumbent governor to really just follow behind Trump. And, and let me tell you, um, Kemp, as we used to say back in the day, beat the brakes off of uh, David Perdue. Uh, it was like when Red asked Debo for his bike back and got knocked out. Things just did not go well for David Perdue in this race. Um, and I didn't I'll tell you, I thought I thought Kip would win because I know he's popular among a lot of Republicans. I did not think he was going to beat Perdue down like this. Perdue let Trump gas him up to take on Kemp and went out there and got beat like he stole something. And I mean, just absolutely thrashed. And I, I, I thought it was pretty embarrassing. That was a lot of time wasted. I really a lot of donor money wasted on a challenge that just wasn't necessary from from that point of view, a challenge that was based on a lie that was based on a vendetta. And I think he just wasted a lot of uh, Georgian's time w- with all that stuff. I mean, the dude got beat not by 30 points, not by 40 points, by 50 points, a former sitting governor, a former sitting senator. Um, that's tough, man. I mean, he ran based on the big lie. He was talking about the stolen election and Georgia voters just weren't going for it. And I think the big question that a lot of people are asking, at least that I'm asking, going to be thinking through for a while is what does this say about Trump's influence? Now, we know in some other states where he wasn't going against an incumbent, some of Trump's people in Pennsylvania and other places did actually win. But it certainly seems like this is a major chink in Trump's armor, especially because not only did he lose the governor's race in this way, he also lost the secretary of state's race in this in this way. And the secretary of state, Raffensperger, you'll recall, actually recorded the conversation with Trump where Trump was like, hey, I just need you to find the votes. And Raffensperger said, no, I'm not I'm not going to find the vote. So Raffensperger is not even the position of a governor who can push all this legislation to speak to the base. Really, the main thing he was known for was going against Trump and he still beats Trump's guy, doesn't even get forced into a runoff. That says a lot, in my opinion. And so we'll see as time goes on what this says about about Trump's influence. Somebody said the big winner of the day was actually DeSantis and uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida, who may actually be challenging Trump in the Republican primary if they both run for president. Yet to be seen, some speculation there, but it's certainly something that we should be keeping our eyes on. Now, before we get into this conversation and I introduce you to our special guest today, as always, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute. I want to shout them out for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. It's been a good partnership and we appreciate uh, the support. So let's get into this. Y'all know what it is. Grab your Bible, get your mind right, prepare to think. Not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but think like a Christian. Let's get it on. All right. Y'all know that. And this is, you know, this is this is something we talked about before. Activism is in fashion. It's trendy. It's hip. It's good for branding purposes, the branding purposes of individuals and corporations alike. We see a lot of social media activists. I think Kendrick Lamar called them overnight activists. There's a lot of folks who sell wolf tickets, who theorize about activism from ivory towers and talk a good game about advocating for the community. Some of them might even show up. They might even fly in when the cameras and the spotlights appear. 
But today I want to introduce you to a real hands-on community activist, um, salt of the earth, sanctified, baptized in the Holy Spirit, faithful Christian activist uh, who is doing some really outstanding work with, with some other brothers and sisters in the faith uh, without the cameras and without the magazine covers. Uh, today, I want to introduce you to John Richards. Uh, we also were supposed to have uh, Elijah uh, Henderson, uh, but they're both from Brunswick, Georgia, and they have done some outstanding work. And I just think it's important to expose y'all to Christians who are really getting it done, who are doing some really good work. And I think it's important that you know them and maybe have an opportunity to support their work. Uh, John, how is everything going? And thank you for, for joining me this uh, this good morning. Everything's good, Justin. I really appreciate you for having me on. Uh, appreciate being able to uh, speak into some of the work that we've been doing down in Brunswick. And I look forward to our conversation today. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about yourself, man. Like, you know, what's your, what's your background and how'd you get into activism? So as you mentioned, man, I'm from Brunswick, Georgia, uh, deep South Georgia. I always have to tell people where it is, uh, especially folks who aren't from Georgia. So we count between Savannah and Jacksonville, halfway between Savannah and Jacksonville, coastal community. I graduated Brunswick High School um, in the 90s and attended Morehouse College for my undergrad and then went to Howard Law School in D.C. for for law school. Um Howard Law is known for producing what's called social engineers, uh, men mm-hmm. and women who are uh, really intent on shaping society, uh, shaping the society around them in their sphere of influence. So I attended Howard to make some type of social impact in my life. Um, but as a Christian, I wanted to be able to infuse the legal career with some um, spiritual realities that I felt like were um, happening in and around our country. So uh, A Better Glenn came about uh, basically in 2020 when all eyes were on Brunswick, Georgia. And so uh, just to give you some context, my brother who coaches football in Brunswick called me in uh, April uh, of 2020 to say that one of his students had been shot and killed and the newspaper put this short blurb in there and he wasn't sure if it was true because he knew the student. So he said, hey, what can we do? We put together some open records requests, other things. He reached out to me because I'm a lawyer and we kind of galvanized the community. And this is prior to uh, what the, na- the nation saw later in May. Uh, I'm talking about Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, Ahmaud Arbery was uh, chased down broad daylight by two, three white men in uh, a neighborhood in which he was running through, accustomed to running through. Uh, regularly. And uh, many of you all have heard the story and know the story, but it was something that was very real for us as a community in Brunswick. And so we came around uh, the Aubrey family, tried to get answers and were able to do so through some local grassroots organizing. And as a fruit of that, uh, we had to establish a nonprofit down there and we decided to call it a better Glen which the vision of A Better Glen is to um, transform a community and shape a community where all people are able to flourish, regardless of socioeconomic status or background. How was it galvanizing that community? Obviously, this was a big deal. It was something that, you know, you, you talk about the fact that the eyes of the nation were on you, but the eyes of the nation wouldn't have been on you at all unless you guys had made, 
you know, an, an, an issue of it. Can you go just a little bit through the process of galvanizing the community around this issue and bringing these things to light for the nation as a whole? Yeah. So um, I think the first thing that a lot of people would need to know about rural communities is, is that the mentality that many people have is that things never change. Mm. that there's systems in place, uh, people in place that don't listen to the voice of the people. So the first hurdle for us was to get people past apathy and try to move them towards action. So we decided that we were going to um, do the smallest things to help them. So we put together an open records request for the police report um, after we saw this one paragraph blurb about Ahmad in the newspaper. My brother thought it was fishy. Other people in the community thought it was fishy. So we made it easy for folks. We we put together this uh, ORR and we gave them a link that they could click and it auto-populates their email. And the police department got over 500 emails in one day um, asking for the police report. Uh, so the way we were able to overcome that apathy initially was to make it easy for folks, uh, make, make, make people... Uh, be uh, advocates in the community without having to do too much work. Because if I ask you to, to put together an email, send it to the police department, folks ain't going to do that. So that was uh, step one for that. And then we also wanted to make sure that um, not just the local community knew about that, but more national platforms were able to be aware of that. So we reached out to some national voices. That also has its pros and cons in grassroots organizing. We can talk about that. But uh, once uh, national voices were able to uh, pick up on it, they were able to let folk, more folks know about it. And so now uh, the county officials have to listen to not just the Glen County residents, but also Georgia residents and national folks and also global folks. Uh, it, came, it became global. And so now they had to actually do something about it, uh, which moved, uh, moved the secretary of state, I mean, moved the AG. Uh, move Georgia Georgia Bureau of Investigation to do an investigation. So that's when things started to actually start moving. And, and our community uh, was excited about it because they'd never seen anything like that happen before. That is huge. I mean, you, you talk about, you know, one thing that you said, you talked about the apathy. And one thing an, an activist always deals with is a level of active uh, apathy and people not thinking things can change. And even if you read about the story of folks like Fannie Lou Hamer, one of the main things they had to do, even after black people got the right to vote, was demystify the political process because they had been denied the right for so long. Even because somebody tells you you have it now, it just doesn't seem real. And so to hear you as somebody who's a social engineer, and I remember reading about that from Thurgood Marshall, the idea of being a social engineer, you know, the idea of getting people, galvanizing them and getting them to move, getting them, them to believe something can change. And getting that all the way up to the AG's office and all that. Um, when did you feel like, OK, this actually might be moving? Because there's always times, especially in the early stages, like you got to you got to get other people to believe. But at, at the time, you're like, I hope this works out. Like, I don't even know how this is going to go. At what point yeah. were you like, OK, we got something here. Like we're moving. Yeah. So I think it happened in May. And this is prior to the video, which made it global. In May, we were able to get in touch with New York Times. And they were able to publish a piece in the Times that really uh, shined the light on what happened. They were able to get some information, uh, police report and other information that we uh, we had access to. But they were able to dig a little bit deeper than we were because, you know, journalists tend to 
be able to dig a little bit deeper. So once the New York Times article dropped, uh, we were able to uh, to hear from some other uh, national activists, civil rights attorneys and others. And so they started to um, to make the conversation balloon a bit. And that's at that point, that's when we were like, OK, now now we have some movement. Now we have some movement because, you know, we we'd seen conversations happen before, but had never seen something like this where now national gaze is on on our community. So we were excited about that for sure. Yeah. And that's interesting, man, because I'll be honest with you. I knew what was going on with Ahmaud Arbery at at a certain point once once it kind of became national. But yours wasn't a face that I saw. I didn't even really knew, know that you were involved with it, even though we're in similar circles until I talked to our good friend, Philip Holmes, and he kind of introduced us and told me what y'all were doing. And I was just excited to meet y'all because it was so encouraging to me uh, what you you guys had gotten done. Talk about being somewhat anonymous or, or, or unknown and, and getting all this work done compared to the folks that you see may or may not be doing a whole lot of work, but you see those faces. Like, what's that dynamic like and how did that work out in this case? Yeah, so I think the one thing that was really helpful for this particular case was the fact that I'm from Brunswick and everybody there knew me. I mean, we're a small town. Everybody's related or they know each other. So they knew I was John from Brunswick, attorney, um, just trying to help out. So the distrust that you see often when you see parachute activism is what I call it. You see people who want to parachute in and out and uh, does more harm than good in the communities. I think that um, having that local connection was really helpful for people. And then also seeing that I'm not trying to do anything for myself. So folks um, folks were able to see that, hey, John's a pastor in, in Little Rock. He's from here. He's pastoring one of the largest churches in the state of Arkansas. He don't need any of this any of the clout, any of the anything that comes with, you know, trying to be helpful for your community. I'm just trying to help my folks, help my people. And so uh, I think that it was very important for me, especially as a Christian man, as a believer, that when you are in this space, like the things that are very important for um, being an advocate in this space is humility. Um, And Philippians 2 is my life passage. Um, Having a Christ who decided to condescend, uh, take on flesh, and then take on the form of a servant. Um, and, and then seeing him serve the disciples in John 17, wash their feet. Like those things, servant leadership is my sweet spot. So um, not wanting to elevate who I am, but actually elevate the cause is just kind of natural for me, uh, who I am and how I'm built and how I'm shaped. And I think, I really do think that when you do that, you will, you empower other people to do the work. And I think that's the important thing about grassroots or organizing is that it's not about one person. It really is about the community itself and people in the community actually doing the work and feeling empowered. Yeah, God bless you for that perspective because I, I think that's right. It, it can't just be about you know us shining and, and getting in the cameras and all that stuff. And what people don't know, I mean, it's somewhat of a secret that that the the parachute activism, as you as you have coined it, get can get ugly. And not only were you kind of humble and not having because bro, we're talking to people who have probably had no idea that, you know, y- y'all were behind what happened. Right. Just because of what was in the cameras and what they saw. But not mm-hmm. only did you take a humble approach to it, which I, I think helped the whole thing work out. You also took some shots. Right. You, all, you also <laughs> suffered 
uh, from yeah. that because sometimes the, t- the parachute activists, they want to be in front so bad that they will take yeah. you down, right? If, if it means them getting in front. How did you handle that in times when it had, you, you're just trying to do the right thing. You taking shots. Uh, I know it had to be hard. How'd you handle that? You know, the psalmist talks about this in the Psalms, and this is what was comforting to me was um, this idea of your character and integrity upholding you and standing up for you in the midst of um, anyone lobbying accusations against you. I I literally had someone um, say that I was not associated with Brunswick. I was trying to come in, make a name for myself. And so the the beautiful thing about that, though, is I didn't say a thing, but the entire community came to my side. They were like, listen, John went to Brunswick High. He lives over in College Park down the road from me. I know I know who he is. He is a Brunswick native. And what you're saying about him isn't what is true. But that doesn't mean that I didn't experience some fallout. So, you know, I was on a plane getting ready to come back home from Brunswick and folks are calling my wife, my family, uh, saying they're going to come by my house and, and do things. And so like when you feel helpless in those moments, it's like, wow, the only thing you can lean on is, is God's strength. And so, um, ultimately, like I said, character and integrity stands for itself. So I think that, um, after several weeks or so, uh, things got really better uh, in terms of people coming to know who I was because I really just wanted to be in the background <laughs> and actually uh, help to lift up the cause and not myself. But apparently somebody felt like they needed to, to call me out because we were doing effective work. And when you do effective work locally, guess what it does? It takes away from national organizations and national folks being able to, um, I, would, I would hate to say this, but to be able to, to profit or to um, be able to move in and do things that they are accustomed to doing. So I think that's one of the things about grassroots organizing is that you have to understand what it means when you get national voices involved, that there's going to be some some drama for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, because unfortunately, it's become an industry from, for some. For better or worse, it's become an industry. And at that point, it becomes a, a dirty game, man. Uh, and one of the things the AND campaign wants to do is avoid that industry mentality, but also be a as we bring folks like you, you, know, you and us together, be cover so that folks don't ever feel like they're just out there by themselves. And that's what we're always trying to protect. Um, just folks, in, you know, whether it's on social media or ever, we're always trying to bring us together to provide each other with cover, man, because it can be really, really rough out there. And hopefully um, Christians can work together because family stuff. People don't realize whether it's in politics or whether it's in activism, families suffer Absolutely. Uh, when 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 people get ugly. So and just that's, to, one the thing, that's one of the things I, I I'm very I try to be very very uh, distinct about is that um, when I think about this space I tend to try to lean towards using the word advocate um, just because one is biblical <laughs> and um, and two I think the the word activist has some um, some type of connotations that folks uh, just kind of. Uh, you know, step back and say, oh, we don't want to be involved with that. But, you know, when you think about this idea of advocacy, you know, Jesus talks about it in his farewell discourse in John 14 through 16. He says, I'm going to send you another advocate. He uses that word parakletos. He calls the spirit of God our advocate. Uh, it comes from a legal term. We're both lawyers um, for someone who comes alongside and supports and helps folks. 
That's what advocacy is, man. It's not standing out front. It's not having what King calls the drum major instinct, right? Um, it is really coming alongside, uh, comforting. Um, early on in the Gospels, Simeon calls is looking for the consolation of Israel. Uses the same word. So there's a consolation that happens as well. So when you're doing advocacy work, it should look different, I think, from activism work. Uh, it should actually be um, informed by scripture, informed by the one who is the one who comes alongside us so that we can come alongside the people who need comfort, who need hope, who need the help and use the gifts, talents and the abilities that we have to be able to bring them the hope that we have in the gospel. Even if we aren't explicitly doing it through implicit means, man, I've seen people just break down because of the work that's being done. They're like, I, we've never seen this happen. Because people are always out for themselves. Like, you don't want nothing. You don't want anything. But for me to be able to get justice, that's different. That's very different. That is extremely different. Uh, unfortunately, it is. But again, I thank God for you and a better Glenn for what y'all for what y'all have done. And, and, you know, more people need to see this example. They need to know the story behind what happened and see this example again, not necessarily for you, for you guys to get any type of shine or glory. Y'all aren't out for that, but to encourage them and help them understand the right way to go about it. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Just give us a second. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. I'm here with my brother from a better Glenn, uh, John Richard, and we're just having a conversation about Christian act, Christian advocacy. Let me correct myself. Christian advocacy. John, we, we talked about all the great things y'all did in that that uh, in, in bringing the community together in the Ahmad Arbery case. T- tell us about a few of the other uh, things that you've done in that space as well. Yeah. So I think at that point we were we were firefighting. You know, uh, there was a fire in our community that we felt like we needed to douse um, and put out. But we began to think about how we can move from firefighting to fire prevention. Uh, how can we prevent something like this from happening and happening again? And it starts at the county level um, in terms of our county police department, our county district attorney and other items. So uh, one of the things that we set out to do was uh, help the county identify national search for the next police chief. Uh, one of the things about rural communities is people tend to promote from within. And when something's broken and you promote from within, the, the system will continue to be broken. So we actually went out beforehand before engaging them and secured about $10,000 in funding for one of my law school colleagues who runs the Black and Brown Initiative, uh, Black and Blue Initiative, which is an initiative to help uh, community policing. And so she uh, committed $10,000 in funding. She got us in contact with National Organization of Black Law Enforcement. And so they were on board to help do a national search for a police chief to help diversify the candidate pool. 
um, long story short, uh, they decided to go with the candidate that Noble had uh, suggested. Uh, he is an HBCU grad, uh, African-American male, and ultimately they selected the first black chief in the history of Glen County. And part of that was due to the work that we did, again, behind the scenes, uh, helping to secure funding and move the county towards action. But we also helped had the community help us in that. So we had them show up at public comment periods. We had them email the police department, had them email all their commissioners to make sure they were aware that the, the community was watching. We don't want you to promote from within. We want you to do this national search. And they listened to their constituents, which was huge for, for a community. Uh, one other thing we did was in June. Well, me, before you move to that, let me say something about that real quick. Um, so many times, and I, and I think people really are concerned about what's going on in the criminal justice system in, in, in our country. I think they are concerned. But so many times folks don't participate in those criminal justice, either elections or those hiring conversations that, that that are being had. I mean, you you know, you you'll hear some of the most vocal folks when it comes to criminal justice, but you ask them who their D.A. is and they don't know. Right. And so I, I just like that you point that out because y'all could have just let this pass and not anticipated that you had to be proactive and change, you know, and change things at, on the front end. Uh, but you really got involved in this conversation about who was going to be the next police chief. I just want people who are listening to understand that it's not just about reacting. There are ways that you can have more control. It's, it's not just even about the vote. Uh, it's not about just voting for president. Right. There are ways that you can have more of a say in how people are treated and how your criminal justice system is working than just the ways that we see. And this is, again, one of the big differences between social media activism and really have been having your feet on the ground and engaged in the community and getting things done. And so I just wanted to point that out. But go ahead, because I know you have something else that just happened. That's that's pretty big as well. Yeah. So we just got news uh, a week or so ago and just saw the fruit of that news that the Confederate monument in our downtown square was removed. So we got pictures, we got video, folks were excited about it. But uh, two years ago, we started the process. So our team put together a proposal for the city to review. That was a proposal that offered them some history and context around the statue. So we did a lot of research on the front end to help them understand history and context around the statue, um, proposed that they put together a committee that um, that discuss the history and context around the statue, proposed that they do a public comment period. And all of this wasn't reinventing the wheel. So the research we did, we went to the Atlanta History Society. We went to other cities that had successfully successfully removed statues and looked at the process that they did and tried to replicate it for our context and contextualize it for a rural community. So uh, we went, did the proposal. Two of our uh, team members sat on the committee. Uh, I was one of them. And then ultimately, the city voted to remove it um, pending litigation. And as you you know, because you're a lawyer in the state of Georgia, uh, Georgia has some really stringent uh, laws regarding removal of Confederate monuments, but there are loopholes that um, we were able to utilize to remove it. Um, I am not sure if they're storing it now, but they have given the Sons of the Confederacy the chance to come pick it up. But 
the good news is that it's no longer in a public square because there was a question of ownership that we were able to capitalize on and ultimately get it removed. I say all that to say that um, the, act, the, the the advocacy that we did on the front end is what led to the fruit of the removal on the back end. And much of that was just being able to come with a proposal and come with something without just being actively upset that it's in the square, uh, help them to come up with solutions as you move the city officials through that process. Here's what you here's something that you just said that really stuck with me. We did the research on the front end. We did our due diligence. We looked into the law. We thought about, you know, what avenues we could pursue. You were prepared. One of the things that always sticks out to me, if you, if you read Acts 17, where Paul goes into the Agora and he's talking to all these different folks, he's talking to them, he's using the Socratic method. He's talking to them in the ways that they communicate. And what's clear to me about Paul in, at that moment is that Paul was prepared. Paul was going about his father's business. He wasn't just going into the Agora having a temper tantrum. And, and saying, do this because I said so and my feelings are hurt. There was a preparation you can tell from him going in there. And the same similar preparation that y'all did. Y'all read the history. You looked at the law. You thought about how you need to approach it strategically. And sometimes we just don't do enough of that. And again, when we're going about our father's business, we need to go about our father's business. And, and sometimes in a lot more sophisticated way. Right. Taking the time, that means it takes time. That means you can't just run somewhere and start screaming at somebody. That's not always very effective. Can you talk about the importance of the preparation and what you do and how that's been beneficial to you? Yeah, you know, strategic planning is embedded in our cultural DNA. And it's not something that we have taken advantage of. When you look at the Montgomery bus boycott, it wasn't something that just happened. Like, Oh, we just going to boycott the bus for however long we want to. Like it was a strategic conversation and then strategic planning that helped people to do carpooling and everything else to be able to move the city towards um, towards desegregating the buses. And so I think that drawing from that historical reality and that DNA um, one of the things about social media and folks who are social activists is that they run from <laughs> fire to fire. <laughs> and so what does true advocacy work look like that is infused with the DNA of the folks who were most effective during the civil rights era? Well, it means that you really have to be strategic and very, this work is prophetic. You have to look forward to see what it could be in order for you to change what is. And so for us, we were able to envision what we could see based on what other cities had already done. So we had a model and template. Uh, we just took that model and template and decided not to just white label it, but actually um, contextualize it for our commissioners. How, what would this commissioner, how would this commissioner feel about this proposal? Um, especially if they are against, they're going to be against it. How can we soften their hearts to be able to do that? I mean, that's that's just John one fourteen, man. That's that's knowing that our Savior is full of truth and grace, and we need to be full of truth and grace. I'm I'm not just going to throw truth bombs at you without being gracious towards you in order for you to receive it well, because then you harden your heart. And so we want to be able to 
uh, to work with some unlikely allies to do this. There are going to be some folks that I might not like <laughs> in the space that they're working in. But at the same time, I think that there are some things that we can collaborate on to be able to move the city forward. And so that actually means having humility and also speaking the truth and love and actually using truth and grace in all your conversations. Yeah. Emotion isn't bad, but when you're talking about advocacy, it can't just be based on emotion. There's hard work. And I mean, you look at these brothers and sisters that were in the civil rights movement. These were think these were cerebral folks Whether they had, whether some of them had a lot of education or didn't, these were cerebral folks who were in the bottom of, of churches and fellowship halls, really getting down to the X's and O's of advocacy. And we should never lose the importance of, of that. But something else, because this, at the end of the day, this is not tic-tac-toe, right? This is, when you're talking about people and their power, you got to become in that conversation playing chess. Or, or, you, or, you're, or you're not going to be, number one, serving God well and stewarding your influence well, right? And you're not going to be setting a, a very good example for others who may be kind of following behind what you're doing. And so I love the example of how y'all really dug into what was going on, use the law, use the strategy, use the history to make a case, a cogent case for what you guys were trying to accomplish. And I think too often we miss that. Something else you said that we're going to get into in the, in the next se segment was this work is prophetic. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The And Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. As you all know, activism as we said before, is in fashion, right? And there are different philosophies. There are different methods. There are different styles and different forms of activism. For instance, the civil rights movement uh, was a lot different in substance and in style from, you know, the activism of the 1970s hippie kind of sexual revolution activism or advocacy. Uh, some would say that the, the latter was more performative, John. Um, and, and some would say that the activism modeled in the civil rights movement was more about efficacy. Now, there's a question as to whether today's activism, most popular activism, looks more like the civil rights movement or looks like more like the hippie style 70s activism. And some would say because it is so performative that it's more so like the 70s style of, of activism, which I think is unfortunate. 
what I want to dig into with you on this 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 segment, uh, John, is what should Christian activism look like to maintain that that prophetic mode, and why can't? And I'm I'm kind of going to answer the question here a little bit because I know we agree on this to some extent. Why can't Christian activism be captured by progressive or conservative ideology? Hmm. Hmm. So I think when you think think about Christian activism or advocacy, um, what it should look like is um, one. I think it starts with being able to work well with folks who might not share your theological um, understanding or bent. So, uh, just for example, in my own organization, in the Better Glen. Um, there are folks who do not share my theological leanings in certain around certain issues that we may not agree on. Uh, but what that means is that we that mean we can't work together as a team collaboratively towards uh, a united front towards a goal that we all can agree on. So I think that one of the things that I've learned in this space is that as a believer, you are going to come across people who really, really want to do good work, um, who might not necessarily share your theological understanding or even share the, to be candid with you, the Christ that you worship. <laughs> so how can you work with those people, um, celebrate the Imago Day in them, um, treat them as co-laborers at the same time when um, when you might not agree on the, to those ends. And you see it throughout scripture. God uses folks who are pagan folks for his goals and his ends. You think about King Cyrus and how God used him uh, to influence and impact the people of God. Well, goodness, if he can do that with King Cyrus, then I know for sure he can do that through my organization. So uh, Better Glenn isn't a Christian nonprofit. I just happen to be a Christian working in the nonprofit to do good in the city. So I think uh, when you think about seeking the good of the city um, that is that you, in which you reside, then you really have to begin by working with people who you might not necessarily worship with. And it's OK. <laughs> it's OK. That, that's so important. You know, the and campaign talks a lot about civic pluralism and how do we enter into a co-belligerent relationship with people who disagree with us. Um, and I think part of it is having a, a level of respect for who they are, right, and, and respect for what they believe and understanding common grace. And we talk about this in compassion and conviction. The the idea that everyone can can work towards, can pursue good, right? It's not just Christians who are the ones that, that can pursue good. Everyone can pursue that. And we can find common ground with people who have different beliefs than us. Uh, such an important point to make. The other side of that is, though, if we don't walk into those relationships with confidence about who we are, with an understanding and an apologetic and understanding of what the Bible says and how we're supposed to a framework for how we're supposed to engage. And I'm sure we've both seen it. We have seen Christians walk into those partnerships and walk out looking less like Jesus and more like full cult or or more like, you know, you name it, but disciples of somebody else. Um, talk about how, how that can go wrong, how sometimes those partnerships can go wrong if we don't have that confidence 
of identity and confidence in, in our faith. Well, you shouldn't lose your core convictions. And um, I think one of the important things about this work and working with progressives is as you do the work, and I do this personally, and Bobby, who um, was to join us today, he's also a believer. He does this in our space. We make people sure we make sure that people know up front, here are our non-negotiables. Here are the core convictions by which we live. And if we're going to be working towards an end in this organization, we need to let you know this up front. I think uh, people refuse to have those conversations on the front end and then get in the murky middle and then don't understand that once you get in that murky middle, you certainly will be drawn to um, the majority. And in our context, we are a minority. But people know our strong convictions and they understand where it is that we stand so that we don't necessarily have to um, revisit those tough conversations that we were able to have on the front end. So I think being honest and transparent up front is much better than trying to be a chameleon. Um, people know who I am. People know who Bobby is in our organization, and they respect that because they see the level of work that we do. I think that's important for anyone who is involved in this kind of work. So let me ask you, there's another trend I've seen and I'd love for you to speak into it. One of the trends I see with folks like us who care about social justice, but are also also orthodox. I've seen a lot of folks who believe in the authority of scripture at one time or whatever, but they've read now, understand the history of America. They've seen majority Christians who call themselves orthodox, not care about justice not care about racial issues, not care about gender issues. And it's it's made them kind of change their position on doctrine. So, you know, I used to be biblical. I used to be orthodox. But now I see what orthodox, some orthodox, orthodox folks have done throughout history. Now my position changes because I don't want to be like them. Mm. And so I changed my theology based on the mistakes of some other folks. Have you seen that happen? And why is it important to uh, avoid that? I absolutely have seen it happen. I think in some ways, many folks take the approach that the Catholic Church takes to the Confession of Peter text. When um, Jesus asks who men say he is and and Peter stands up and says, you are the Christ. And then Christ says, "Um, you are correct in saying this. Upon this rock, I'll build this church. They interpret that as I'm going to build it on you, Peter. Right. Mm. So so what we do in our particular context is we look at the people rather than the confession of the Christ. And so we we project onto people um, our misgivings about the Christian faith or we, we project on the Christ our misgivings about the Christian faith based on the people that Christ never set up as being the example. Uh, so there's this kind of this Catholic approach to, oh, if so-and-so does this, then I'm going to stray from doctrine because that person misapplied what the text says. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we take uh, improper use or an abuse of a text or abuse of scripture and say that it's normative when Christ himself is saying, hey, the confession I'm saying in that text is, that I'm the Christ and I don't change. I'm I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and finisher of your faith. So I'm unchangeable. And if you hold on to that unchanged, my unchangeable nature, 
then you cannot stray from the doctrine because it, it, it doesn't become about people. It becomes about the Christ that we do follow. That's a word. That's 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 very good, man. Please do not leave orthodoxy. Please do not run away from the authority of Scripture because of what other folks have done wrong. And, and I initially talked about majority Christians and the mistake they've made, and that plays a role in a lot of people who kind of switched up. But it happens. There's church church in, in the black church too, and folks who've misapplied it in the black church too. So I do I do want to be uh, clear about that. Last question, and I, I think this has been an excellent uh, conversation. What are some things that Christian uh, advocates should avoid from the right and from the left ideologically? Like, so what's something if if I'm, you know, working on kind of rightward issues, what's something to avoid? If I'm working on leftward issues, what should Christians be aware of and kind of avoid that could kind of take us off our path? Yeah, I think uh, from the right side, I believe that we need to avoid um, being pro-life in the way that they articulate it. Um, I think that you all have done a good, great job of understanding what pro-life is, all of life, whole life is. Um, but what we've seen, and y'all write about it in the book, is this great polarization, right? Either you with us or you you against us. So um, make sure that in this space, make sure you always present that third alternative that, that you say, hey, I'm pro-life. Absolutely. I think that um, that babies who are um, from the point of viability or even from the point of conception are um, formed and shaped in the Imago day, and they absolutely need to be protected. But I also think that they need to be protected from the womb to the tomb. How are you how are we thinking about retirement and uh, nursing home and uh, elder law and things that are immensely important for those who are in the latter stages of life. What are we thinking about with the school to prison pipeline? So affirm where they are, but pull them back to where you are. And you're thinking about all of life. So I think that that's important. So you don't ignore that piece, but you say, hey, there's more. Let's flesh this out a little bit more and talk about what pro-life looks like, right? And then from the left side, I think it certainly is pulling them towards that moral imperative. Like the work that you're doing has a moral imperative that underlies it, mm. that shapes it, that that is clear in Scripture that that denotes that um, that God Himself is the author of this moral imperative. And so I think that continuing to challenge that this doesn't fall out the sky, <laughs> that that these things are. Things that God has put in place and put in the human heart and the conscious, because uh, this work isn't really just footwork, it's hard work. Mm, and I think that work. when you look at the left, I think that they are thinking about how much we can do and move and go. But man, the 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 most joy I get out of this is seeing people's hearts transform. People who are staunchly for the Confederate monument staying up, saying, you know what? Take it down. I don't really need a monument downtown. I understand. Now I understand your position. Man, when you see that heart transformation, that's gospel work, man. And so I want to pull the left towards understanding the moral imperatives and understanding the heart. Um, and that's part of what I feel like is in advocacy is an evangelistic tool for, for me to be able to pull people towards that and to see right practice right doctrine from a Christian 
and a believer that doesn't look like the far right. Man, that, that, that's so good. Um, John, uh, thank you for this. Before we get out of here, tell everybody where they can find you. How can they follow your work? You can find us over at a org. We have uh, several initiatives that we got going on over the next several years. We would love for you all to join us and partner with us in that work, but also continue to follow and campaign. We're doing some work with them. We appreciate you all for the work you're doing and also not being the folks who want to come in and do stuff, but actually say, how can I paraclete? How can I come alongside of you all and advocate for the local community as you are doing work. So I appreciate you guys for that as well. You got a social media handle they can follow? Yes, sir. It's uh, at John C. Richards Jr. on all platforms. So at John C. Richards Jr. on all platforms. As my man just hinted, uh, we're in the lab, folks. So me, John, Bobby, some other folks are in the lab. We're going to be collaborating and doing some things for the kingdom. So keep your eyes peeled. Watch out for that, man. We really are doing some of the things that we talked about. We're, we're trying to strategic plan uh, for the better of not only the church, but for the better of uh, our cities and, and those around us. John, this was an outstanding conversation, man. Thank you so much for joining. This will not be the last time that you're on the Church Politics Podcast, brother. Thank you. Appreciate you, man. As always, Ann Camp, you know that there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ until next time, Ann Kemp. Well, how about you?